We've just heard John chapter 11, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's one of those passages in the Gospel of John where John really slows down, really stretches out the story, and he uses his considerable storytelling skills to tease us, um, to force our hand. One of, the, one of the techniques he uses is that there are three moments in the story where Jesus does something. If you've been reading the Bible like a novel and you've been reading it straight through up to this point, there are these three moments in the story where Jesus does something that is surprising, that's unexpected. First is in verse 6. When Jesus finds out that his very good friend, Lazarus, is dangerously sick, it says that Jesus waited before he went to visit him. Why? Why the delay? John wants you to ask that. He teases that. He wants you to, to reflect on that. Then the second one comes up in verse 35, where it's the shortest verse in the Bible. I grew up in church. I, little kids in my church growing up, we all like to say we could memorize scripture. Jesus wept. Like, that's all it takes, two words. And um, but why? Why is he grieving? The third unexpected, surprising action of Jesus comes up in, in, in verse 33 and in verse 38, where we see Jesus angry, mad, so angry that he actually shakes. Again, why? What exactly is it that's driving Jesus into a rage? So these three surprising, unexpected actions that Jesus takes in this remarkable story. Now, each one of them is a riddle. John likes riddles. We've seen this already. And he likes riddles because a riddle is a way that he can provoke you, the reader or the hearer, to not just be passive, but to think about this, to meditate on this. And so as we do... Each one of these odd behaviors of Jesus, as we kind of like, oh, that's kind of weird. What is that about? And then we think about it, we meditate on it, and we study it. Each one of them, for John, the author of this gospel, they become a window. Each one of these unexpected actions, um, as you further reflect on it, it becomes a window to a deeper understanding of who God is, what he's like, his character. Each one of these unexpected actions, though, is not in John's kind of plan here, ultimately a window. Because John wants more than understanding. Each one of them reflected on not only as a window that you can see out through, you can see God through, it, it will become a door. A door that you're invited to enter into so that you yourself can know God and can experience Jesus. It's, it's a door, an invitation for all of us to experience God and know God in ways that just sitting back and reading these stories at arm's length doesn't really produce. So let's listen for God's address in John chapter 11 by taking each of these surprising actions in turn. First of all, the delay. The curious delay. It, it, it's an odd thing. So in verse 3, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus that Lazarus is ill. 
And then look closely at verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Isn't that weird? Like, doesn't that strike you as, I mean, David Cooper calls me, Aubrey. Anita is very sick. I hang up the phone. I love Anita and wait two days. That, that's an odd thing. It, it's, not, it's incongruent, and it's the riddle. It's the little t- trick that he's using to get you to think about this. And you know what happens in those two days? While Jesus waits, Lazarus dies. Now notice how this creates an unbearable tension. This tension between Jesus' love and his delay, this inaction becomes the tension that drives the story forward. And we feel it. Martha felt it. In fact, in verse 21, when Jesus finally gets to Bethany, the first thing Martha says to him is, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So it's like saying, okay, well, what, what was that about? Was Jesus not, um, did he not know? Is this a lack of knowledge? Is it a lack of care? Does he say he loves like some people we know but doesn't really love? Is he all talk and no action? What, what is this? Well, Mary, the sister, when she first encounters Jesus in verse 32, same thing. The first thing she says to him is, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And then their friends in verse 37, when their friends first encounter Jesus, again, the thing they say is, you could have stopped this. Here's the catch. You know this stuff. I suspect that many people in this room have had the same experience with God. You needed him, and he did not show up. You ask him to stop something from happening, and he didn't. Don't you feel this tension? Doesn't it feel like when you really need rescue and saving, and you, and you put it out there to God, and he delays? Don't you, don't you feel this? How many times have you been racked with stress and worry and fear, and yet God doesn't do anything? He just doesn't show up. And when you go through something like that, when you really need God, and he really doesn't, in those moments, our souls can feel like they're perishing, like they're just melting away. And one of the things about this kind of experience is it's a profoundly lonely experience. When you need God and he's absent, no matter how close your friends are, it will be a terrifyingly lonely experience. And it can be so messy and disorienting when we have no idea what God is up to and everything we thought we knew about God is just blown apart. And in those moments, it becomes impossible to clearly discern what God is doing. That's the essence of the dark night of the soul. It's when the darkness eclipses God. And, and, it, and it drives you to pray things like Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Can't you hear Mary and Martha saying that in this story or Psalm 13? How long, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long? And when the suffering and the absence of God just keeps going and there's nothing we can do to make it stop or to figure it out or to get rid of the pain, let's just be honest and admit God's timing does not seem good. And yet, we see in John chapter 11 that Jesus, like Gandalf, may not come when you want him to, but he does show up right on time. I mean, see, that's the trick with the story here, right? The story here, we're reading it. We're not going, we don't, we're not Mary and Martha and the friends. We're not in it. We're over it. We're looking at it. So we read it and we don't feel that tension because we know how it ends. We know that he gets there too late, but actually right on time. But what John chapter 11 is teaching us is that Jesus' delays hurt. And sometimes the wounds of a friend devastate. But what we learn here is that we should not judge God's love through our circumstances. God always acts with love, but frequently we can't see it when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. That's the nature of the valley of the shadow of death, is you can't see God. One of the worst things you can ever say to somebody going through this is to find God is to ask them, where do you think God is in this? Because that's precisely the nature of the trial. The nature of the trial is that they can't. The narrator can see it. We can see it. But the very nature of the trial is that they can. And too often we come alongside our friends and say, you know, where do you see God at work in this? And that's the very issue that's ravaging them. So what is our job to do when we're in the valley? Our job, this is a hard thing. The trick When we're in the valley of the suffering of death, of of the shadow of death, the trick is to trust that God is there when you can't find God there. To trust that his love is there when his presence is so absent. So we don't come alongside our friends in these devastating dark nights of the soul and try to help them find God because that's the thing that can't be done. What we do is we come alongside our friends and ourselves and each other, and we need to help people help ourselves trust in the love of God when we can't see it. See, that's the first riddle. Why? I love you and so I delay. How is a delay love? Here's the trick. We can never figure that one out. It's an unanswerable riddle. The the challenge is that God's love is there when it can't be figured out. Now, what's the second riddle? The second riddle is the grief situation. Verse 35, Jesus wept. See, the problem we've got here is that when we read Jesus wept, we assume he weeps like our family weeps. So you're from the Midwest, you know, it's a little tear in the corner of your eye that if you catch the light just right, your friend is weeping, right? Um, A child of mine sat down, and we were talking really late at night recently. Nobody else was there, and we were talking about this very sad thing that had occurred 
many, many months before. And the child said to me, this is the first time I've, I've cried about it. And I was like, really? Like I couldn't even tell. And then in a moment, he, this child turned and um, there it was, just a sliver. Um, apparently that was great weeping. Uh, but remember, Jesus wasn't from the Midwest. Um, he was from Palestine. And uh, Janelle and I had a friend from Ethiopia whose little kid, little uh, son was killed many years ago. And at the funeral, they had professional whalers. They had these women in all black garb, and the moment the body came in, shrieking. That's closer to Jesus' culture. So we read Jesus wept as if it's kind of this, you know, modern European kind of thing. It's not. Uh, you know, to get the force of it, this is closer probably to a terrible wail of grief comes out of him. Why? Why does Jesus do this? Because he loves Lazarus. He loves him. These tears show Jesus' deep identification with those who are grief-stricken. It reveals the breaking of his heart for you when your heart is broken. The deep pain that death and the devil, who uses death so mercilessly, the deep pain the devil and death bring to human hearts breaks Jesus' heart. Death hurts everybody, including Jesus. This is no stoic God. Do you see how much he loves? This is John 3.16 in a concrete example. For God so loved the world. And he loves you. He doesn't just love the world in general. He doesn't just love everyone. He loves each one. He loves you. So Jesus delayed and Jesus grieved. And the third surprising action in chapter 11 is his anger. Now again, our cultural lenses get the best of us here. John chapter 11, verse 33, we're told Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I don't know why that's the way most English translations do it. Because it's not a good translation. For example, the German translations, Luther, when he first translated the Latin Vulgate, Latin Bible into German, he translated very differently in most Languages of the world translate this differently. A better translation that catches the force of it is Jesus was seething with anger and shuddering with distress. And then again in verse 38, we're told again, Jesus is just boiling with anger. Now, why is Jesus in a rage? Because that's the appropriate response to death. To what death does to human life. To the destruction it deals out to God's creation. Jesus, like I said, is no stoic deity. He is filled with a white, hot anger and a broken heart. That such a thing can happen to this world that he loves. And to these friends that he loves. And in the story of Lazarus, in John chapter 11. All that emotion, what it's doing is it's, it brings us up against what death really is. A damned imposter. Not something we should ever be reconciled to. To be truly human is not to be reconciled to death. 
but to protest against it, to recognize it as the destroyer of life that damages even the life of the living long before they're dead. But remember, from the beginning of the Bible and all the way through it, there is behind death a dark force, Satan. And in John's gospel, it's interesting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Satan often shows up in like these wild, crazy exorcism kind of situations. In John's gospel, they don't. Satan's not like out there with like, fangs and writhing bodies. In John's gospel, Satan is in the shadows like he is in America. We tend to sanitize Satan. He tends to stay back. And here is Jesus knowing that this is not just a thing that happens to people. This is a tragedy. That death is a tragedy. And behind this is the work of the devil. And when we see Jesus raging with anger, it is anger towards Satan, the evil one who presides over the realm of death, wreaking havoc throughout God's good creation. And so as we reflect on this, it becomes clear. From the beginning of the story, Jesus has been in control. Remember the delay? Intentional control. And so when he arrives at the tomb, don't think that it's the kind of anger you maybe have seen manifested in your life that is triggered by a hair trigger and just overwhelms him. No, what we're seeing here is that when Jesus arrives at the tomb boiling with rage, he is not the victim of anger. He is an aggressor. And when we read the whole of John's gospel, we realize this is not a sudden anger. This is an undying hostility to the forces of evil coming to the surface in this moment. Why? Why does it come up in this moment? Why as Jesus is approaching Lazarus' tomb? Because this is the turning moment in the whole gospel. This is the moment that Jesus steps foot on a pathway that is unavoidably going to the cross. In other words, when Jesus arrives at Lazarus' tomb full of anger, he is not an idle spectator. He is not some powerless observer. He is not a hapless victim. Oh no, watch him approach the graveyard and you are watching a wrestler preparing for the contest. Hear his bellowing grief and anger because he knows that he is coming to face the violent tyranny of death that rises up before his eyes. You see, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, John 11 makes clear that this is the event that sets in motion the whole train of events that leads to his crucifixion. And Jesus knew that. He had already left Judea. He had already left this area because it was getting too dangerous for him. And that's why his disciples said to him, are you really going to go back there? That's where the danger is. What was Jesus doing in those two days? The same thing we read in other gospels he was doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was getting ready. Are you sure, God? Because this is the moment of no return. And so when Jesus approaches the grave and he says, Lazarus, come forth, he signed his death warrant. 
Because that's when the high priest, when they heard, when the high priest council heard about this miracle, it's clear that they began to meet and they decide at that moment, the last verse in our reading, verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. In raising Lazarus, Jesus stepped firmly into the ring for the great final showdown with Satan. So in a very real sense, here's the catch, Jesus didn't lay down tears for Lazarus. He laid down his life. He clearly, in raising Lazarus, went to his death. He died for Lazarus on a straight, literal level. So look at Jesus in this moment, striding into the graveyard, into this tragic world consigned to death. And here comes Jesus to deliver us from death in the only way possible to die in our place. So that he can share with us the eternal life of God. In fact, that's what Jesus tells Martha in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever has faith in me shall live, even though he dies. And no one who lives and has faith in me shall ever die. So this is not about surviving death. It is about way more than that. It's about the reversal of death, the abolition of death, the negation of death. It's not about the survival of some little spiritual splinter of your soul. No, this is about God taking all that we are, body and soul, And doing what it takes to heal us forever. In the resurrection, we will not be less bodily than we are now. We will share in Jesus' resurrection, who rose from the dead, fully embodied. The eternal life that Jesus gives is not just for the future after death. It's also for the present The eternal life of Jesus defeats even the shadows that death extends into our life. Death is our greatest enemy, but it is a defeated enemy. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And the only chance any human has against death is to believe in Jesus. And so Jesus was able to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he is able to raise you. And me, and Karen, Karen who died yesterday. And we carried her body to a graveyard in the Christian hope, which is that Karen will have a body again in the resurrection. Notice verse 43. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now look, this too is a riddle. In John's gospel, he doesn't call these things miracles. He calls them signs. And by calling them signs, he's saying there's always two levels of meaning. There's always the straight literal meaning. This is an amazing thing. A guy got raised from the dead. His family that was in grief now is in joy, right? But by calling them signs, he's saying whatever happened right there on that literal level It's pointing to something else, a more transcendent meaning. And what is this pointing to? It's pointing to the hope God gives all of us. But it's, look, it's pointing to the gospel itself. Jesus says to you. And Jesus says to me. 
You don't have to stay dead. You don't have to be dead in your sins. If you hear my voice, my power will raise you and rescue you from the grave of your sins, of your, of, of, of your brokenness, of your loneliness and your isolation. I, I can speak all the way into that. And if you will believe in me, this eternal life that I give you is not just about a, you'll get to live forever on the other side of the resurrection. It's also about a quality of life that I can begin to bring into your life now as you live here among the death works now the question is have you answered his call have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ look what he says to to Martha at her brother's grave he says whoever believes in me though he die yet he shall live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die and then he looks Martha in the eye and says do you believe this and we should all hear God asking us that do you believe this do you believe in Jesus Believe in him. Open your heart to him. Give him your love and your loyalty even when you can't figure out how all this stuff is making sense. And you too will be saved. Let's pray.